What I'm concerned about is the reputation of evangelical Christianity and the credibility of the Church of Jesus Christ right now. Poisonous. I'm afraid to fail so I won't try and now my potential has become poisonous and I'm miserable because I'm not living my potential. Happy, successful, fulfilled individuals have learned how to live their best lives now. In prayer, and as plain as day, God put a picture in my mind of a metro uh, bus stop in Houston, in a certain part of Houston that was nowhere close to my The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. We ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. What's wrong with you people? This is Sparta! Greetings, this is Ed Dingus, and you are listening to The Reformed Rant. The Reformed Rant is a podcast in which I rant about issues related to theology, philosophy, apologetics, the church, culture, and even politics, but from a distinctively Reformed perspective. The Reformed Rant discusses issues going on in the real world and in real time, examines those issues in the light of Scripture in an attempt to help you think biblically about the issues with the ultimate goal of honoring Christ and glorifying God, both in how you think and act in this present evil age. The Reformed Rant is a proud member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Check them out at BibleThumpingWingnut.com. You can also learn more about the Reformed Rant by visiting my website at ReformedReasons.com or by checking out the guys over at Reformation Charlotte. You can also leave me a message uh, in the mobile app if that's how you're listening to the podcast. You cannot do that if you're listening on a computer. Finally, you can contact me at edingus, E-D-I-N-G-E-S-S, at carolina.rr.com. Hello, hello. This is Ed Dingus, and you are listening to The Reformed Rant. Today is March 2nd. This is episode number 10, and I am ranting about presuppositional apologetics. And the catalyst for this particular rant on this particular subject continues to be Cody Leibolt over at the New Christian Intellectual and some of the comments that he is making about the subject of presuppositional apologetics. Comments that, in my opinion, reflect 
an extremely deficient understanding of the subject matter with which we are going to deal today. So this is not going to be even an overview of presuppositional apologetics as much as it is going to be um, focused on an introduction to presuppositional apologetics. All right, so I like to call this the biblical method for defending uh, the faith. So from the very beginning, we want to ask the question, what is apologetics? And of course, the answer to that question is, well, it depends. It depends on who you ask. Uh, So as a uh, Reformed Christian, uh, I hold to the method of presuppositional apologetics in the interest of of fair disclosure. Now, I understand that not all Reformed Christians hold to presuppositional apologetics, but from what I can see, that really does not matter in terms of whether or not you should hold to presuppositional apologetics. And what I mean is... uh, There are people who are inconsistent in their views all over the map on a variety of subjects, and I believe this one happens to be one of them. If you are a Reformed Christian, from my perspective, it seems to me that you are pushed in the direction of uh, embracing and subscribing to the presuppositional method. That said... We typically say that Cornelius Van Til is the the individual who really did more to shape this apologetic method and build this structure than anyone else in the history of the, the Christian church. And his students behind him, guys like Greg Bonson, John Frame, built on the foundation that Van Til laid. So I bring Van Til up because as we talk about what is apologetics and how do we define apologetics, and since I am a Van Tilian guy, I'm going to use Van Til's definition. So in his book, Christian Apologetics, Van Til defines apologetics this way. He says, apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. So perhaps it's better to say that apologetics is the vindication of the Christian worldview against various forms of the non-Christian worldview or worldviews. I understand that some people uh, take exception to the idea that there are only two worldviews when you really boil it down to the basics. I happen to, to think that that's the case. But At the same time, I also understand that um, I do not want to (laughs) impede the conversation by distracting uh, folks with items like this that could end up to be more superficial than anything else. So I will concede if if a person wants to, to claim that there are numbers of worldviews out there. Okay, fine. So then we would say... um, Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian worldview against various worldviews that are non-Christian in nature or that are competitors of the Christian worldview. Why is apologetics important? Well, the simple answer to that question 
is found in Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So there is a mandate in Scripture, and this is this is probably the clearest one. This is the one that is that most people run to and most people look at and examine and use to inform that question, why is apologetics important? But there are a very variety of other texts in Scripture, and not just that, examples uh, all over the New Testament where apologetics is engaged in by the, the New Testament uh, characters such as Paul and and Peter, and so forth. Now, what is often asserted about this text, and this is where we start to immediately run into issues, is that Peter supposedly has Socrates or Plato or Aristotle in view when he employs the word logos, which is translated in uh, the English version, the NASB anyhow, uh, give an account for, to give an account, right? So this reading, this is reading something back into the text when a modern Christian apologist starts to say this means basically that you are to give a a rational answer, a logical defense for the hope that is in you. So what happens is modern apologists bring in Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, they bring in rationalism, and they they imply, and some of them say outright, that Peter actually has this in mind when he's using this word, and both the word uh, apologia and the word logos, both those Greek words, and this is simply mistaken uh, right off the bat. There is, there is nothing to suggest that the apostle Peter, when he was penning 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 15, in the context of persecution, in the context of encouraging the church to stand firm on the truth, there is nothing in the text to suggest or the culture to suggest uh, that Peter was actually thinking about um, the laws of logic when he, when he wrote this as uh, intentionally or otherwise. So basically, the philosopher, the modern Christian apologist, is reading something back into the text that really isn't there. Christians are simply commanded here in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in them. Um, now, Christ is the hope, and, and that, that reason or that giving that, that uh, defense, right, give a reason uh, for the hope that is in them. Give an answer to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Uh, the word apologia here not only can mean defense, but it also can mean to give an answer to anyone who, who asks you a question. Give, you know, tell us why you have this hope in you. There's nothing here that would indicate that this is some sort of a logical syllogism that's coming into view and that Peter is actually thinking about Socrates or Aristotle. Uh, Cliff McManus says, and I would recommend uh, his book, Biblical Apologetics, he says the standard traditional apologist's definition and application of apologia as used by Peter is, is flawed, and he's right. 
One of the most glaring problems in the field of apologetics is the fact that it is overcrowded with want-to-be philosopher types rather than biblical exegetes. This emphasis on philosophy leads many in this area to neglect the more basic elements of biblical ex- exegesis in preference for philosophical arguments built off autonomous human reason. In fact, if you listen to some of the leading apologetic uh, proponents and apologists in this field, you can even hear them saying that if you have to pick a field to study, say, for instance, exegesis or the languages, or maybe even systematics, the the systematics theology, or a philosophy, they encourage seminary students to study philosophy as opposed to theology or exegesis. And the funny thing is that this mandate that's given to us by Peter is found in the, the Koine Greek of the New Testament. Uh, which wouldn't lead one to believe that you would have to emphasize and have a good grasp of how to exegete that text and interpret that text so that your theology is a reflection of the truth that is revealed in Scripture. And then on top of that foundation, you are building your philosophy and your apologetic, right? So the foundation here is the Word of God rightly understood, right? finding its way into your, your thinking and your, your articulation and how you reason. And then from there, your apologetic sits on top of that. So it is a bad idea to bypass the hard work of exegeting the text and just to jump over to these other argument types or other apologetic methods that seem to want to... Um, to a degree, diminish the value of biblical exegesis. So what what McManus is pointing out here is that most apologists are guilty of committing the exegetical fallacy of semantic obsolescence, or uh, I would add uh, semantic acronism. In some cases, these younger apologists are reading definitions and meanings back into that word apologia uh, and logos. And on the other end of the spectrum, this semantic obsolescence is when you take a word that, say, used to mean something hundreds of years ago, but it's really lost that meaning at this point. It's not used in quite that way any longer. But you're forcing that meaning and that definition uh, into that word in this much later context. This is a an exegetical fallacy, according to D.A. Carson, that he calls semantic obsolescence, okay? What we should do when we see 1 Peter 3.15 is we should ground Peter's use of this word in the Hebrew Old Testament, in the prophets. See, because this is the culture, this is the background from which Peter is writing. He is not writing from a secular, pagan, Greek background. He's a Jew, 
He is writing from uh, a background, a Hebrew background, where he is calling on the authority of the Old Testament and the prophets and Moses and so forth as he's making his argument. So texts like Isaiah 8, 12 through 13 uses similar language and kind of echoes this idea that Peter is talking about here, sanctifying Christ as Lord and not being afraid. So essentially, deposit the idea that Peter was thinking about Socrates or Plato or Aristotle when he penned these words is to dismiss his Hebrew context entirely and to conveniently replace it with a Greek background that is foreign and out of place, and I would say also unwarranted and illegitimate as far as exegetical practice goes. So from the standpoint of presuppositional apologetics, this is a method of apologetics that makes no, excuse the pun, apology for its employment of defending Scripture with Scripture, the method for defending the Christian faith. Now, this is important, and we need to hear this. The method for defending the Christian faith must be consistent. The method must be consistent with the Christian teachings it seeks to defend. The method of defense must be consistent with what it's defending, right? In other words, apologetic method should cohere with Christian doctrine. Christian apologetics should cohere with Christian doctrine. Your apologetic method should always be able to trace itself rationally along a straight line right back to the core teachings of Christianity without any kind of inconsistency whatsoever. Essentially, what apologetics is doing is defending the teachings of Scripture with the teachings of Scripture. This does not sit very well, I can tell you this for sure, with with atheists, and it seems to not sit very well with many, many young Christian apologists in the churches, okay? Uh, We are defending Scripture with Scripture. They seem to want to defend Scripture with something external to Scripture, and they seem to feel like that is necessary for credibility's sake. And if you defend Scripture with Scripture, you're engaging in circular circular reasoning. And I, I dealt with that on a previous podcast. And I'll come back to that in, a late, in another podcast. I think we're going to do another podcast on uh, presuppositional apologetics, but we'll do an overview of presuppositional apologetics, which will be a little bit deeper than what I'm doing here today. So here's here's what I think about defending Scripture with Scripture. If, if it is the case that Scripture is God speaking, and I believe that it is, and the funny thing is, so do most of these young apologists who are coming onto the scene these days, then it seems to me that no authority or standard could possibly, possibly be better than Scripture. What higher epistemic authority could there be that to which I could appeal that would be better than or even equal to Scripture. I can't think of one. What better evidence do I have for the truth claims of Christianity than God speaking? I can't think of any better evidence than God telling me something. God witnesses to the truth of the facts of Scripture. God is the witness. The Holy Spirit witnesses to these truths. You cannot get a better witness. 
Okay. So that's that's part of just a, a segue into what presuppositional apologetics is is doing. Now, let's jump let's let's jump off here on some things that Cody Libel said recently on uh, I guess it's Facebook, but I have in front of me his his quotes, and we're going to start with the first. And he says one of the main problems with presuppositionalism is that it teaches you not to support your view but only to attack other views. Now, again, I have been studying presuppositional apologetics for, I guess, 20 years. I've been studying apologetics for 25 years. That's about right. And I can say categorically that that statement is wrong. I'm going to say that I'm going to quote the statement again. Here it is. Quote, one of the main problems with presuppositionalism is that it teaches you not to support your view, but only to attack other views, end quote. That statement is patently false. Now, I'm not going to call into question Cody's sincerity, but I am going to have to say that this is, abs- this is a demonstration of serious incompetence when it comes to a complete lack of understanding when it comes to the topic of presuppositional apologetics. And if your understanding of the subject is this deficient and this defective, then you should you should respect the subject enough to not go in and start making comments about it that are so obviously wrong and outrageous. And there's no other way to describe that statement. He he goes on. I tell you what. Let me um, let me continue continue forward. So, and then I'll come back to something else that he that he says a little later. In apologetics, as in every aspect of the Christian life, the most important thing is to glorify God. This comes from John Frame in the book Five Views on Apologetics. So, number one, where does faith come from? And th- again, this is John Frame talking about faith and rationality in the book on five views. And John Frame is a presuppositionalist. So he asks the question, where does faith come from? So you think about that. Where does faith come from? Well, God causes faith by his own free grace. It is part of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, apart from which there isn't going to be any faith. All right, no saving faith. Second, the rational basis. So God is the source of faith. God is the cause of faith. What is the rational basis for faith? Reality, truth. It is in accord. That is to say, faith is based on a reality that is in accord with all the facts of God's universe and all the laws of thought that God has ordained. The faith God gives us agrees with God's own perfect rationality. So then we claim that Christian faith governs reasoning, just like it governs all other human activities. When you reason, you are employing the tools, the cognitive tools that God created all human beings to possess, and when we engage in that behavior, there is an ethic for the Christian that immediately comes in, enters in. 
It is possible to reason in a way that is sinful. It is possible to reason in a way that is obedient, that honors God, that is submissive, that acknowledges the Creator. Right, so human reasoning is an activity that has to come under the submission of Christ. And this is why we say that Christian faith, which is the gift of God given to us in the, in the act of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, that faith has to govern human reason because human reason, unlike the gift of faith, has been effected affected, but impacted by sin, you see, so that our temptation as a sinner is to reason in a way contrary to God's reasoning. So the Holy, being filled with the Holy Spirit, we are commanded to think the thoughts of God after him. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ's Jesus, you see. All right. Leibolt goes on to say, as a method, it is entirely negative and deductive. You can't say X without contradictions or absurdities it claims. All right. So presuppositional apologetics is not deductive. All right, so when I say deductive, let me give you an example of a, of a deductive argument. And this is, the, this is once in all the textbooks. All men are humans. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is human, okay? That is a deductive argument. This is not what presuppositional apologetics is doing in back of presuppositional apologetics is what we call the transcendental argument. Okay, this is a different way of reasoning and it is asking a very basic question. And that question is, what is the necessary condition for, let's say, X? In other words, in order for X to be the case, what else has to be the case, right? Transcendental arguments may look like a deductive argument on paper in form only. They are not employing deduction. And if, if Cody Leibolt thinks that that's what they are, and if he thinks that that's what presuppositional apologetics is doing, then he is mistaken. It is not doing that at all. So we say, um, let's, let's give an example. What is the necessary precondition for fire? Right? So the necessary precondition for X is that thing which, if it did not exist, X could not exist. So using fire, we would say the necessary precondition for fire is combustion. If there is no combustion, there can be no fire. Okay, this is what transcendental arguments are doing. Now, this is not an uncontroversial field of study. It is, as any field of philosophy 
uh, is these days and uh, has always been the case, it seems to me, any field of philosophy, they seem to always be filled with controversy. Uh, it's just the nature of, of philosophy. Sometimes it's very frustrating. So I don't want to come across as saying, I don't want to come across as being overly dogmatic in any of the things I'm saying here. I, this is, though, however, uh, not controversial in terms of what transcendental arguments are doing. That is absolutely the case. It's when we get into the nitty-gritty details of transcendental arguments that there's all kinds of different uh, views and opinions about uh, what's going on inside some of them and the forms that they're taking and so forth. So we would say this as it, as it would apply to... Christian apologetics. God is the necessary precondition for rationality. That's the Christian claim. Now, as a Christian, I don't know how you could, with a straight face, deny that. Because if you affirm Christian metaphysics and you affirm Christian epistemology and you affirm Christian morality, you will basically affirm the core fundamental teachings of the revelation of Scripture then you would agree that God is the necessary precondition for rationality or human rationality, we, we, we might say. So that statement is actually true. It's demonstrating that statement to be true or showing that that statement is true that is, is where the, the disagreements come in and the, and the controversy rages a little bit. But again, this is not... Uh, a, an introduction to you know how effective a Christian apolo uh, presuppositional apologetics is. This is not a asking the question: Does the transcendental argument for God do what it claims to do? This is merely an introduction into what presuppositional apologetics is. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to introduce someone to the subject of presuppositional apologetics, you have to talk about transcendental arguments. Right? Now, I understand just saying transcendental arguments to most Christians is going to be off-putting, and it's going to kind of cause them to step back a little bit. Okay, So try not to, to, to let it be too off-putting, because this is, it is an important subject, and it is something that would benefit you to become more familiar with, although it, it's not easy. Um, it is doable. It is po possible to do this. It is possible to become acquainted and achieve a basic understanding of this particular method of defending the Christian worldview. So let's continue. If So we would take this and put it into a transcendental argument and it would look like this. If there is no God, there is no rationality. But there is rationality. Therefore, God exists. This is the structure of the argument. And the, this, the argument is saying, God is not the conclusion. The argument is saying, God is the necessary precondition for human rationality. Without God, human rationality would be impossible. That's what the argument is saying. Now, Leibolt goes on and says, asks the question, quote, but why is it necessary to speak without contradictions or absurdity in the first place? 
that is a matter that only can be can be established by induction right by looking outward and taking in facts so we respond with proof right so here's the claim again if there is no god there can be no rationality there is rationality therefore god exists now the first thing that the person is going to say is how do you prove that how do you show that that is actually the case and this is where libolt is really getting hung up and running off the tracks and it's where a lot of people uh, get hung up and run off the tracks so taking another um, snippet from Van Til's, one of Van Til's works, a survey of Christian epistemology, and I have all of Van Til's works in my library, by the way, as, a, as any good Van Tilian should have. Now, Van Til says this, the contrary is impossible, right? The contrary is impossible. The proof of the Christian worldview, the proof of this argument that God is a necessary precondition of Human rationality is seen in the impossibility of the contrary. That's the proof. Human rationality would be impossible if God did not exist. Now, the contrary, Van Til says, is impossible only if it is self-contradictory when operating on the basis of its own assumptions. Listen to that. The contrary is impossible... Only if it is self-contradictory when operating on the basis of its own assumptions. It is this, too, that we should mean when we say that we are arguing ad hominem. We do not really argue ad hominem unless we show that someone's position involves self-contradiction. And there is no self-contradiction unless one's reasoning is shown to be directly contradictory of or lead to conclusions which are contradictory of one's own assumptions. So essentially what's happening here with this approach is that you are taking that other person's claim, their worldview, and showing them that on the basis of the assumptions and presuppositions of their own worldview, their claims to rationality and intelligibility and knowledge are contradictory with their basic assumptions about what reality is. That's all you're doing. All right. I hope that makes sense. So the truth of the matter is, when when Cody says this is this is just deduction, uh, he apparently is completely unfamiliar because Van Til re- rejects traditional deductive and inductive reasoning. All right. In his book, again, the, A Survey of Christian Epistemology, Van Til says, from the description given of the deductive and the inductive aspects of the method of implication, it will now appear that what has historically been known by the deductive and inductive methods are both equally opposed to the Christian method. So Van Til here clearly articulates his belief that inductive and deductive methods, as they have been traditionally and historically been understood, are both opposed to the Christian method, which means he would repudiate and reject those methods. So for Cody Leibolt to say that presuppositional apologetics is just deduction, uh, is a 
a, an absolute clear demonstration that Cody is completely unfamiliar with the works of Cornelius Van Til and ill-informed on presuppositional apologetics and what the transcendental argument does. And let's turn our attention briefly to the transcendental method. And again, I want to remind you that this is just an introduction, a glimpse into presuppositional apologetics. And my next podcast, uh, my next one or two podcasts, will provide an overview of presuppositional apologetics and give some demonstrations on what it looks like when it's carried out in the in the real world. So Van Til says a truly transcendental argument takes any fact of experience which it wishes to investigate and tries to determine what the presuppositions of such a fact must be in order to make it what it is. That's all from the same book, Survey of Christian Epistemology. All right, so what we're looking for is what are the the actual facts of experience and the presuppositions that we have to hold in order to make those facts be what they actually are. Okay, this is the transcendent. This is what transcendental arguments are doing. For example, a transcendental argument is going to take the experience of, let's say, morality, and it's going to investigate the idea of morality as it seems to transcend human experience because it is universal. The idea of good and evil is a universal idea. It's a universal concept. And what transcendental argument is trying to do is understand what has to be the case in order for that experience to be intelligible. How do we make sense out of our experience of morality in this world? And of course, the Christian is going to say the only way to do that is to, is to say that God is the necessary precondition for transcendent objective morality. Right, and so then you end up with all these arguments about well, it's not a, there's no such thing as objective morality, and 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 you you chase those those arguments and those rabbits, and you demonstrate how those views collapse in on themselves and make no sense. They end up contradicting the person's metaphysics and even epistemology. Van Dill goes on and says it is the firm conviction of every epistemologically self-conscious Christian that no human being can utter a single syllable, whether in negation or in affirmation, unless it were for God's existence, right? So you would, you would say, let's, let's, ta- let's wrap this up with a, just a brief conversation around an argument that is presuppositional in uh, nature. Uh, if there is no God we would say, then there is no intelligibility, right? No, no knowledge whatsoever. But there is intelligibility. Therefore, God. Okay, so that's, that's the argument. That's the claim. That's, you got, to, you got the, the claim that the premise, if there is no God, there's no intelligibility. Okay, we'll have to demonstrate why that's the case. And then there is intelligibility, which to some to many people 
is uncontroversial, but to philosophers, it's not. I'll just tell you that up front. Uh, it's it's not. Uh, at any rate, and then the conclusion, not the conclusion, uh, the conclusion in form only, therefore God exists, because God is the necessary precondition for intelligibility. All right. Now, the proof is then seen in to claim intelligibility is possible apart from God is going to involve a contradiction. So what the presuppositional apologist is going to focus on is the claim from the unbeliever that knowledge is possible without God, apart from God. Autonomous human reason, autonomous intelligibility, autonomous knowledge can all can be obtained and do attain in, in the state of affairs as we know them without there being a God. You do not have to have God in order to have knowledge, right? So the necessary precondition for human knowledge, the Christian would come back and say, is divine knowledge. Knowledge cannot arise from nothing. You cannot know something. You cannot come into knowledge without having some sort of knowledge to begin with. Knowledge cannot arise from non-knowledge. Zero-sum knowledge is going to produce zero-sum knowledge. Knowledge cannot get started without knowledge. I can't learn the smallest thing unless I know how to learn, unless I know how to take in knowledge and do something with that knowledge, you see. This becomes a real philosophical problem for people who want to argue that there is no God, but we can still discover truth about reality and that humans can come into to knowledge. There's another argument for God from logic that we can get into, and we'll probably get into that in another episode. I'm not going to get into that here. So the, the, the point here is that, number one, presuppositional apologetics is an attempt on the part of the Reformed Christian to defend the Christian worldview, to provide a vindication for the Christian worldview in a way that is consistent with the core teachings of Christianity. In other words, that is a method of, of apologetics that is faithful to the biblical text. That's the goal. That's what the Christian is trying to do. And at a minimum, people like Cody Leibold should at least appreciate and respect that because that's the attempt. It isn't that uh, presuppositional apologists are trying to be lazy. Right? You go talk to some people who are trained in presuppositionalism and you are going to find out in a hurry that these are not intellectually slothful people. These are deep thinkers. In fact, I have studied classical apologetics and presuppositional apologetics and the other methods of apologetics, but I subscribed to classical apologetics. And I can tell you, intellectually speaking, that presuppositional apologetics for me, and I think this is true of most people who, who, who practice presuppositional apologetics and who have who maybe used to subscribe to classical apologetics, is that the presuppositional method intellectually is much more robust, intellectually much stronger. There's a lot more intellectual muscle required uh, for those who want to go deeper into that 
method of defending the faith. Now, I do celebrate that any apologist that's out there defending the truth claims of the Christian worldview, that's a good thing. I'm not going to criticize people for, for defending the Christian faith. Nevertheless, there is a right way to do this and a wrong way to do it, and every Christian should at least agree that if you're going to put up a defense for the Christian worldview, then the method should be consistent with the worldview that it seeks to defend. And the danger is that many of these methods that are being employed today to defend the Christian worldview actually presuppose things about reality and about the world that contradict the Christian worldview. So that is that is the objection that the presuppositional apologist typically has. So that's the first thing, uh, and that, that there's two things. One, what I just said about the presuppositional apologetic, it's the vindication of the Christian worldview in a way that seeks to be faithful to the biblical text and consistent with the teachings of the Christian worldview. It's built upon a theology that is derivative of solid exegesis of the revelation of truth in Scripture. That's what it's built on. That's what it sits on top of. Second, um, you need to be careful where you um, get your instructions from in terms of apologetic method. If you want to understand presuppositional apologetics, then don't just listen to this podcast. Don't just listen to me on this, but go to guys like John Frame and Scott Oliphant over at uh, Westminster. Pick up their books. John Frame has books out there. Uh, Scott Oliphant has books out there that are, I think, even better. Uh, and then probably, I, I don't know of any better reading than Greg Bonson uh, and his, his huge work on Van Til's apologetic method. And, and then, of course, Van Til himself. This is where you go to gain an understanding of this method. And if you have not done that and you, and you do not understand exactly what presuppositional apologetics is doing and you haven't read anything on transcendental arguments, then it's, it's in your best interest to go learn and equip yourself and try to understand what the method is doing, what the approach is doing, as opposed to just running out on the internet and writing articles and criticizing an approach to apologetics that you clearly do not understand. Now, I hope that makes sense. Thank you for listening. Again, you can contact us if you have questions. There's a way for you to uh, end the podcast. If you're, if you're listening to the podcast on a mobile device, you can send us a message. Uh, you can do that on an iPhone or, 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 or let's say, a your cell phone or um, a tablet. You can also go over to reformedreasons.com and uh, send us a message over there. That's where we have uh, our blog. That's where I do. I store the podcasts. Are, well, they're there in, in several other places, but all the podcasts are listed uh, on the website. And then also, uh, look, run over to Reformation Charlotte. My brother's over there doing great work. I'm, I'm part of that group. And uh, so look at the things they're writing. Very much uh, 
taking a firm stand for biblical truth, taking a firm stand against uh, the current of unbelief and uh, all kinds of movements of the culture that are uh, standing up and lifting their voice against biblical Christianity. And these guys over at Reformation Charlotte are doing everything they can to uh, stand up and continue to shout from the the mountaintops, the truth of, of God's word. God bless you. Thank you for listening. And again, uh, we will talk to you when we rant again. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com mm-hmm.